Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Thursday. We're almost through the work week. The weekend is almost here. Fantastic, awesome show planned for you today. TJ Moe back in studio with us. Always good to have TJ here. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Steve Kim. Uh, Jordan Bowles is going to be here. Uh, Pastor Anthony Walker, and am I right? Is Virgil? Yeah, Virgil's going to be with us today as well for some Tennessee Harmony. We're going to start with a doozy of a story <sighs> that I hope I have the discipline uh, to get through this story uh, with TJ and see it. I'm glad TJ's here to keep because Steve Kim and I will go directly to jokes and this thing could get out of hand. Uh, but it's actually something I, I want to talk about. I think there's some somewhat serious issues to explore around Zion Williamson, and we're gonna talk about it. Uh, before I do, I wanna take care of my good friends, our good friends at Liver Health. You guys know that almost two years I've been taking Liver Health Formula. Liver Health Formula jumps on board with us out of nowhere. Didn't ask them, didn't, didn't know it was coming, Liver Health Formula jumps on board as a sponsor and a supporter of what we're doing here with Fearless, and I cannot recommend this product. The, the, the only product I could probably uh, put on the same level of endorsement, it would be like if, uh, if McDonald's jumped on board as a sponsor and I had to testify about how much I like the filet of fish sandwich, I could do it as authentically as I can say, I love Liver Health Formula. I've been using this stuff for nearly two years, helping me control and fight my fatty liver. Too many American men and Americans have fatty liver. Uh, the American Liver Foundation says that 100 million Americans have fatty liver, which means many people are at risk. We throw everything at our livers, cholesterol, alcohol, toxins, Tylenol, cigarettes. That's why so many of us have a sluggish fatty liver that makes us gain weight and lose energy. For decades now, your liver helped you with over 500 key functions every day. It's time you help your liver. There's a solution, Liver Health Formula, an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver. Manufactured right here in the US of A and approved by American doctors. So if you're looking to ignite your fat-burning metabolism, boost your energy, and transform how you look and feel, try Liver Health Formula and receive a free bottle of blood sugar formula to reduce sugar cravings when you order today. Try Liver Health Formula by going to getliverhelp.com slash Jason and claim your free bonus gift. That's getliverhelp.com slash Jason. Couldn't give you a stronger recommendation. Been using this stuff 
long before they hopped on board as a sponsor. Be a good, fearless soldier. Fight your fatty liver right along with me. GetLiverHelp.com. All right, uh, down to business here. Uh, and Steve, I, I want to give Steve Kim, bring Steve Kim up on camera. I want to give Steve a warning. Steve, we're going to do our best to, to limit the number of jokes we crack uh, while discussing Zion Williamson, because I, I do think there are some serious issues or just there's a more profound discussion to have about Zion Williamson. For those of you that haven't been paying attention to your social media feeds, Zion, the NBA star, uh, is in, and I guess Jada Pinkett Smith would call it an entanglement. Uh, he's in an entanglement with a porn star and a stripper. Uh, he knocked up the stripper. Uh, he's calling her his girlfriend. I think she's 29 years old. Zion is 22. The stuff I've read, she's already got two other kids, but uh, he's doing a baby reveal with this 29-year-old uh, ex-stripper. And from out of nowhere, the porn star, that's the, that's the stripper, that's the baby reveal. Uh, and then the porn star, a woman named Mariah Mills, I believe, uh, she did her own porn star reveal, uh, releasing video footage of her and Zion at work, uh, making all kinds of accusations about uh, the woman Zion knocked up and the activity that she's been having with, with Zion. This thing is a hot mess and it's uh, very popular over social media. Everybody's talking about it, everybody's cracking jokes about Zion Williamson, everybody, yeah, this is the porn star, uh, Mariah Mills. There's so many different places I could go with this. I, I have to be transparent and I can't wag a finger and act like the old man that was never an idiot. But, and, and there's part of me that reads this story and looks into this story and, and says, you know what, nothing's really changed about athletes, just we know more about them. That, you know, athletes have been promiscuous sexually for a long time. A lot of reasons why people, guys wanted to be athletes, because athletes get the girls. And so a professional athlete sleeping with a stripper, sleeping with a porn star, uh, putting a porn star, it looked like he had the porn star on a scholarship program, no different than, uh, what was it, Who, Donald Sterling? Uh, you know, he had his, it, it appears that Zion was paying bills and was, you know, renegotiating uh, scholarship funds, name, image, and likeness deals with uh, porn stars or whatever. Uh, I, I just don't know if that's all that different, but it just feels different. My respect for athletes is is much lower, and, and I can't, here's my problem. Here it is, I'm gonna crystallize my problem, then I'm gonna let TJ and Steve into the conversation. My problem isn't the irresponsible behavior, young men, 22 years old with money have been irresponsible from the beginning of time. My problem is that the athletes and corporate media have used athletes 
and have pretended as if athletes are the moral authority to shove down our throats. You need to be in support of this. You need to be uh, fighting the criminal justice system. You need to feel bad because George Floyd resisted arrest and choked on fentanyl uh, when Derek Chauvin had a knee on his back. And you're a racist and you're a sellout and good people, they have placed themselves because it's good for their social media brands, it's good for them in terms of endorsement dollars, they've made themselves Martin Luther King Jr. while clearly being having more in common with Hugh Hefner, Bill Cosby, and Snoop Dogg than Martin Luther King Jr., who also had a problem, according to the FBI, with extracurricular activities. But that's what I, the hypocrisy of athletes is at an all-time high. It's reprehensible and repulsive to me. I'm not sure if athletes have changed all that much, but uh, Steve, I'll, I'll let you start us first, then TJ, you chime in. When you saw this unfolding over social media yesterday with Zion, Zion Williamson, what were your first thoughts? Couple of things. Adam Silver wanted to kind of table the Ja Morant news. Well, there you go. That happened. So that took care of that. <laughs> uh, second of all, you know, it really didn't surprise me. In defense of Zion, he's never tried to be an activist. Uh, and if you can criticize him for anything, it's his lack of durability and the fact he's been injury prone and may not take this profession, because that's what it is. It is a profession. It is not a game. It is now a profession all that seriously or seriously enough. But Jason, I, I'm kind of like you in a sense that I'm very realistic and pragmatic about this. Athletes are entertainers. That's what they are. They could tell us that we are more than athletes. But to you and I who don't know any of them, that's all you are. You're a piece of two-hour programming. I get to enjoy it, and then I change the channel. It may sound cold, but that's the whole – that's the reality of what these guys are. And they get paid very well, and they get compensated beyond anyone's belief. But – Am I the type that's going to look down on Zion? And trust me, I've got jokes. Like, for instance, uh, which one was the rebound and which one was just part of the rotation? Because one of those girls looked like she won the lottery. And I thought about it. You know what? She did. But I remember growing up as a kid in Montebello, California. I, I could see it right now. My old room growing up, Rackin' Mountain on Juarez Street. And... I don't think TJ would remember this because it's before his time. But, Jason, do you remember when Sports Illustrated used to have those posters they would sell of various athletes and all the sports with the with the black letterhead and the white frame? So the four posters that I had in my bedroom, uh, three of them were, were, were like real idols of mine that to this day I still look up to. I admired them. One was Eric Dickerson. One was Steve Garvey. And the other one was Tony Gwynn. Okay, uh, and the other one was Spud Webb. It was about his dunk contest. He was just a guy that I liked. wasn't really an idol. But look back at those guys. Tony Gwynn lived a clean life. Didn't even steal cable, right? Steve Garvey had kids out of wedlock, and he had this squeaky clean image going into the late 70s, married to a celebrity of her own, Cindy Garvey, who hosted television shows out here. Well, Steve Garvey had a lot of kids out of wedlock. There was infidelity. And by the time he got to the Padres, there were literally bumper stickers saying, Steve Garvey's not my Padre. Okay, then Eric Dickerson, who I think may be my first or second 
most favorite athlete of all time. He had a kid out of wedlock in 1985. I'll never forget reading about it. I'm this young kid who's on the Herald Examiner, and they talked about Eric Dickerson sued in a paternity suit. Eric, uh, Jason, I had no idea what a paternity suit was. I didn't. I was so naive. I didn't even realize people could have kids unless they were married. I'm thinking, wait a minute, Eric has a kid that's not really it's his, but they're not married. It's so. I'm used to this. I don't think we should be all that judgmental. It is what it is. It is part of the NBA lifestyle. And I, I didn't get this, though. This is not a joke. Since when do they have gender reveals for kids out of wedlock? Is that the bar now, guys? Because I've never heard of it that way. I, all for the gram. <laughs> it's, okay. for, it's for the gram. I, I have never heard of it outside of wedlock. Well, clarify something for me that you, that you said. Athletes are not any different than they have ever been. Starting when? Ever. I don't know, maybe 1920s. Babe Ruth. I, 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 I'm sure TJ. Babe Ruth was a drunk and Chase Tail. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure if ever. What say, Steve? There's a book that kind of blew the lid off the whole thing of these – um, athletes being so disciplined and virtuous. It was a book by Jim Bouton called, I think, Ball Four. One of the funniest books ever. Changed the way I actually covered sports or the way I looked at it. And he was a, a journeyman pitcher who had some success, and he wrote a book, A Secret Diary, about a year in the major leagues. And he talked about everything without specifically naming names all the time. And one of the lines was, for major league ball players, and this is back in the 60s or early 70s, he says, one of the toughest things to do to come off a road trip is when you when your wife picks you up at the airport and try to talk her into getting a penicillin shot for some reason. So trust me, this has been going on for years. <laughs> it's part of the experience. And some of the tales that you heard of NBA players who had their own streaks of different sports. So I don't think all of a sudden it just happened. This is not a 21st century occurrence in my view. The reason I'm asking is because so Kurt Warner, who I think is one of the few wholesome athletes of my lifetime, had a phrase that he would tell us. I went to the same church as him for a while in St. Louis when I was a kid, and he used to say, new level, new devil. And what he meant by that was, look, I was stocking shelves and everything. Like, as a man, you always got options. If, if you want to go out and cheat on your wife, there's always somebody willing to sleep with you. There's, a, you know, some deadbeat girl somewhere. What he said was he signed a seven-year, $47 million contract, and now he had all the options in the world. And he's like, the more money you get and the more you're on the road, the more time, new level you get to, more popularity, more people know who you are, new devil. And the reason I think it's worse today than it may have been back then is because of social media. Their inboxes are full. They don't even have to go fishing. None of these guys, they all got plenty of money. There's nobody checking their bank account. Instead of having Terry Bradshaw, when he first entered the league, having to go work a job in the off season to still go provide, you got, you know, the what idle hands or the devil's workshop. These guys don't need a second job. They get all the time in the world. Because they're making so much money, most of these guys have their wives in a place where they don't want to ask too many questions so that they're not expendable. And so I just think new level, new devil. All of these guys are in a place where, sorry, we got in a fight with my wife today and I got an inbox full of choices. So I'll just pick one. So... That, to me, sounds like you're making my point, though nothing's really changed. There's just more options, more temptation, and therefore more fallen soldiers. 
Yeah, so as far as what people would be willing to do, probably hasn't changed. What people have the options to go do has changed. And so I think there's worse behavior today, particularly because where I think the morality has, has likely changed is the encouragement and the normalization of the bad behavior. So at least for a while, you would never, you would never can you imagine the 1960s doing a gender reveal out of wedlock? Right, so it, yeah. we have now embraced and normalized this bad behavior. So it's just not that big of a deal to go throw fifty thousand bucks on the ground at a strip club. You would and have Jason, been ashamed of doing that once upon a time. And, and Jason, Z, oh, I, I think these things right here have amplified everything. It, it's just how quickly you can get the message out. You can entrap people, screenshots, videos. And then now you have social media. I mean. Old Momo out there was like on an absolute rampage. And for the record, I can't lie. I went on her timeline just for research purposes to scroll through everything. And one of her tweets is, you better hope that I'm not pregnant. And I'm thinking to myself, this has turned into the Maury Povich show. Like, is Zion the father? And, and so you're kind of looking at this. And now it's really a shame for Zion on a serious level. He's the last college basketball player or the only one in the past, I would say, 15 years that I've cared about. And what I mean by care about, if he's on the TV and he was at Duke for about three months, that I would say, okay, Zion Williamson's on TV. I cannot wait to journey and follow this career. Obviously, it hasn't worked out. But there were such high hopes when he got drafted, number one, that he was supposed to be the headliner. And now, unfortunately, no matter what happened, short of winning five straight MVPs, he's now going to be a perpetual punchline. I, I mean, seriously. And so that that part of it from a human element, I actually do feel a little bit of sympathy for him because, you know, when I saw Zion doing interviews in high school and then Duke and leading into the draft, he seemed like a relatively grounded young man. And it turns out maybe he's just kind of this country bumpkin now living in this big city life of the NBA who simply got caught up. I... So much of here, here's one thing that has changed. I, I think so much of sports used to be about fathers and sons or fathers and families taking their kids to sporting events and pointing out there and say, son, you can be like Joe Montana, you could be like Walter Payton. Well, I mean, what a great reputation Walter Payton had. And I can TJ's the only father right now on the show. I don't think you'll be taking your kids to sporting events the same way your dad may have taken you to sporting events. And, and yes, it's just like, hey, let's go to watch these. Basically, it's a group of clowns entertain us. There's, they provide no other value. I don't, I don't think their work ethic over in general is greater than anyone else's work ethic. I think most of them have hit the genetics lottery, and that's what it takes. It's, it's not the hard work that gets most of them into the NFL. Uh, it's their genetics that gets them into the NFL. And then once you get in there, the guys that actually work hard, the Ray Lewis's, the pay, have more success than people that have an equal level of talent as them. But, but overall, I think there's so much money given to young people and, and, and so much attention that I, I just, the whole allure of sports is different. I, 
I, you, I used to feel like I was watching important people. These guys seem very unimportant to me from the hairstyles to the tattoos to mm. the big gold chains to the clown outfits they wear walking into the stadium to everything. It, it's just like it's a group of free. And so it's like going to a concert. And this is what I used to always say, the difference between the music industry and the sports industry. Families went to sporting events. You drop your kids off at a concert because you don't want to. I ain't going to be involved with this foolishness. Yeah. Drop my kids off. That's where sports are kind of. There's no extra value or benefit to sport other than, you know, hey, sports are good for staying in shape and build, you know, building the kind of uh, physical activity that will make you healthy. But <laughs> beyond that, it offers nothing. So here's a. I was actually just talking to my dad about this yesterday. We were just talking about raising kids and some of the challenges you have. And um, football taught me work ethic. And so it wasn't just, a, it wasn't PE class, just stay in shape and have good physical activity. And one of the benefits, because I actually think if I could do away with social media tomorrow and just say it was never invented, I would do that. But one of the few benefits of social media is you actually get to see inside of the lives of people that are willing to step out and you'll, you'll know, is this a person of good character? At least what are they willing to put out there? Do they have courage to say something a little bit different? Let me ask you this about football teaching you work ethic. Did football teach you work ethic or did your talent compared to the other people you were competing against teach you work ethic? Because there's some really talented guys on most football teams really that they don't have to put in the kind of work you had to put in and they didn't i grew up in the suburbs i was the most talented kid on my team and so i wasn't looking at that right had i gone and played somewhere else i maybe wouldn't have been the most talented but i was the hardest working kid on every team i ever played on so that was true whether i was the most athletic or when i got to college the least athletic it just so happened when i got to college i was the least athletic right. so but i learned that work ethic because what i was talking about with my dad was like how do you teach kids good work ethic today? Because we're, we're just talking about the economy and nobody wants to work and the, the Gen Zers are just staying home. Half of them would just, they'd rather travel. Hey, I got enough money. I saved up $7,000. I can go to Europe and you know, this will last me for the next three months. And that's their mindset. They're not trying to build things. So we were just talking through all that kind of stuff. And I didn't have a job. I worked one summer for my dad's flooring company. And look, it was hard work. It was manual labor, laying um, like decorative floor coatings on top of driveways. It was you know, 90 degree heat in Missouri in the summer. Not easy, but I did it for three months ever. I didn't, that's not where I learned my work ethic. I learned it playing football. And my dad used that to teach me to now it's just natural, but I had to utilize something. And thankfully, I brought up Kurt Warner. We had some unbelievable role models. Isaac Bruce was another one. Unbelievable role models in St. Louis for a time. Hardcore Christian guys that set a good example and actually lived it. And if you go talk to the people who were on those teams, there, it, you know, you may go to some of these guys that you think are pretty good, and their teammates will throw them under the bus and say, "Yeah, you never saw him out at the club." You'll never hear that about Isaac Bruce. You'll never hear that about Kurt Warner. So my dad actually was able to take me during that time and say, "You want to be like these two guys." Look at Isaac Bruce and watch what he does and look at his work ethic and look how he's different. And we were able to utilize football to teach me life skills. And so my hope moving forward is, yeah, there's a lot of the nonsense, but there's still, I remember 
I had to pick somebody else with very little talent when I was in college to try to emulate, and that was Wes Welker. I'm like, all right, he's even shorter than me. He's not very fast. What does he do? And I remember watching him in training camp and like his journey because he was with the Dolphins. He was, I think he tried out maybe for a few different teams, and he wasn't getting any reps, and he would be the guy in training camp who would go back 20, 30 yards, and he would run the routes on air as though he was in the game because nobody would give him any reps, and he just needed to get his reps in. And so I'm like, I can just do what that guy does. Just keep working until somebody notices you. And so there are still those people out there. The media may not tell you about them. They may be glorifying you know, the guys who just had six foot eight, LeBron James, whatever, but those guys are still out there, and sports taught them how to work like that, and I think they can teach our kids how to work like that too if you find the right ones. Steve. Yeah, so T.J. Mott was all cul-de-sac, and uh, he, he took that to a thousand-yard receiving season in the SEC. <laughs> Kids, it can happen. It can happen. But you know, Jason, what you just said about the athletes and what you think of them now compared to, let's say, twenty years ago. We obviously, I think, we both have similar perspectives. It's from the words of the immortal Logan Roy: "They are not serious people." But it got me to thinking about this. Uh, Jason, you say something about how the Duke guys years ago, Coach K, the legendary Coach Krzyzewski had an advantage because he always had nuclear families that he was recruiting from, and these guys were always stable. And as I'm kind of reading this whole thing about Zion, I'm thinking to myself, where have you gone, Grant Hill? Where have you gone, Johnny Hmm. Dawkins, Phil Henderson, Antonio Lang, Thomas Hill? I mean, for years... I can't think of any Duke players that had any real scandals uh, that graduated from that program. But even Coach K, after a while, with the whole one-and-done culture, had to say, you know what, we're going to dip into this pool. It's not what we do. I'm going to have these guys. I'm going to rent them for about four and a half, five months. I'm not going to grow with them. They're not going to have any real life skills outside of playing basketball, so they better make this work. And I didn't realize this until I saw a few videos. Zion did have a father, but it was the stepfather that raised them, and I don't think that relationship was exactly perfect. So all of that ties into this. Um, What's your family background? Did you have a strong uh, male role model? So, but again, Zion now is now a punchline, unfortunately. And I don't know what's going to happen to his career. He It was kind of funny that Mariah, old Momo, said, I helped you motivate you to get into shape, and I helped your rehab and I'm thinking of myself, yeah, you better be motivated now because you've got 18 years of child support. And if that doesn't motivate him, <laughs> nothing will. Well, the thing about Mariah saying she motivated him, do y'all have – yeah, look at this clip. <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> who's motivating her? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, and, and, and look, different strokes for different folks. And I know some people look at that and think, oh, man, that's, that's what's cracking. That ain't what I see. <laughs> Help me with this one, because this is what I can't figure out. Uh, Zion Williamson's a good-looking guy. He's got plenty of money. He has all the talent in the world. If ever he can play more than 30 games in a year, he may be on to something. Uh, what is he doing with these women? And this is a good question for you, because you were a guy that had plenty of money, could do whatever you want. Why is he not moving into quality women? What are you doing with these girls? Mm. <laughs> TJ, you forced me to a real place, and, and so buckle up. I'm going to tell you. Uh-oh. And, and so some of you that hardcore believers that don't want to hear, you know, 
the answer to this, turn your volume down, check back in 20, 30 seconds from now. Uh, look, man, whenever you have an unbelievable sexual experience with a woman, it's because she's been practicing somewhere. And practice makes perfect. And, and so uh, they've been in the gym. He's, he's dealing with girls that have been in the gym that work hard like you do. When you, <laughs> that's what they have. And so he's looking for evil Knievel sexual highs. And it's like years ago, there was, there was the strip club, I think, in Atlanta that the players all went to, and there was a woman, they called her the Michael Jordan of sex. Patrick Ewing, everybody, blah, blah, blah. She was in the gym, and she, she had that reputation. I can remember she was at a ESPY party I was at out in L.A., and every, people, it was like she was a celebrity. And, you know, uh, it, it, so that what he's into is he's trying to have the greatest and, and then that's how a lot of these guys, because if you end up trying to chase a sexual high all the time, that's how you end up with porn stars. And then that's how porn stars end up taking you someplace where, hey, what's this dude doing in this bed with us as well? And why is this dude's <laughs> finger in my rear end? This is, this, is, this is how you they take you down that path and and, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll I I know I, some of this I'm not speaking to I have no experience with anyone any of that stuff I just talked about but I just I could see it coming and that's why I hit the eject button is 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 I can remember I was out in Las Vegas with a girl I was dating at the time and she's from Northern California, and she's got all of her friends that they all go to raves and they all travel to Mexico to party together and blah, blah, blah. And we're out in Las Vegas, and some of her friends, we're at a pool party. Um, it wasn't Wet Republic, but it was another popular pool party at that time. And her friends come in from San Francisco and there's some rich tech guys, young tech guys, and they got the best suite at whatever, the, it's whatever, one of the newest, nicest hotels there. And, and we all go back up to their suite after being at the pool party. And the next thing I know, someone walks in with this tray of drugs, cocaine, any drug you wanted was on this tray. And I looked at her and I said, what the, where the hell did you bring me? I'm out. And she looked at me like, are you kidding me? Are you great? I was like, I can't do it. I can only go so far. And me and a bunch of drugs in a hotel in Las Vegas, I can't, I just can't. It's too high risk for me. And I left. And, and, and it's one of those moments. And literally, she came home, let's say I left at 9 p.m. She came back to our hotel at 4 a.m., so hyped up on cocaine and uh, couldn't sleep, started drinking, trying to sleep, and I, that's when I was like, oh man, I'm just in over my head. I gotta, I, I, gotta, I gotta get out of here, I gotta get away from this. I'm just, this is just in over my head. Very nice girl, both her parents were doctors. Mm. Um, yeah. it, 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 but 
it's just like she lived on that edge and it was, you know, I was wise enough to put some restraints around myself. But but that's what when I look at Zion and I look at all these guys and I I'm sitting here wondering why all these athletes are caping up for the LGBTQ because I'm t you know if I I don't want to dwell too long on it but you know she liked girls and you know all of that stuff she was just into anything and I was just like man I stay out here swimming in this part of the ocean too long, I'm gonna end up places I got no business being. I'm already in a place I got no business being. And so that, that's when I look at Zion and look at these athletes, that, that's what I, they're young, they're stupid, the, the, the whole culture has told them, place no limits, no restraints, anything goes, you won't be judged for anything. If some dude comes in here and rear ends you, no big deal. Uh, it, 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 that, that's just where they're at. And so, I, trust me, I'd look at one of the, as a 56-year-old man, I'd look and say, like, what do you, you can get the best that the world has to offer, and this is what you're knocking up? You can't even wear a condom? Mm. These guys can't make any sacrifice. That's a, just put a condom on at the very least. Can't even do that. Knock them up. Now you're entrapped in that for 18 for the rest of your life it won't just be 18 years you're going to be dealing with that kind of idiocy but uh Jason. I, the culture has has done it go ahead steve yeah uh, when, the, when when you end up in the bed with another guy that i think they call that the triangle offense but here's, here's the thing that got me <laughs> about zion's decision making so i'm kind of looking through this and i'm kind of like deciphering what is going on so mariah says well you were going to move me out. I'm like, wait a minute. Zion wasn't just going to flew her out or get flewed out. You were going <laughs> to move her in knowing that you had another girl pregnant. So, okay, fine. So now you're playing a game of Russian roulette. But then you make the pregnancy public, which ruins your situation with Miss Mills. I'm like, bro, you're playing Russian roulette with six bullets in every chamber. I mean, come on. Give me a break. I'm sorry, Zion. It's not the fact that he's overweight and he has bad knees or a foot. I think what's keeping him from NBA stardom, he's not smart enough. He's not, seriously, because if that's your decision-making, you can't be good. Hey, Steve, the only thing, he, he might be valedictorian of the NBA. He just got caught. And I'm just telling you, I, none of these guys... Not all many right. of them are all that smart. Yeah. Uh, and, I, I, and I don't know that, that's my problem. So we've gone from, let's take, well, we were talking about 1960s, 1940s, it doesn't matter. Dad was home, then you had a high school coach, then you had a college coach who was making more money than you, then you had an NBA coach who was probably making more money than you, and you had to listen to all of them because you were expendable. And today, dads are gone. High school coaches are scared to death to say anything to the to black players. College coaches get you for 15 minutes if you're in any, any good. And NBA coaches are absolutely worthless, and it's just round robin for one guy to the next. There are no mentors anywhere. But okay, there's also just more, there's just more competition for attention in terms of, you go back in my time, there wasn't Instagram, MySpace, Facebook, there, there was none of that. The, the temptation, and there, there weren't cell phones. It was so much harder to communicate. And so dating, keep up, I think one of these women lived in Dallas. This guy lived in New Orleans. It wasn't even an option yeah. back then. Dating some woman in Dallas? He was stuck to whatever was in New Orleans. 
and was in easy driving distance. There wasn't, you know, hey, hop on a plane, hop on a Southwest flight or whatever flight and just come on in. I got $200 million, doesn't matter. You know what, I'll send a private plane. And, and, and I'm just telling you, there, there was in my era, and, you know, I wish I had taken my advice and, you know, but it was like you were supposed to date women that were worthy potentially of marriage. Yeah. Now that's not the case. It's just swipe left, swipe right. It's just Tinder, and it doesn't matter who you date. You know, I'm not trying to drag this guy, but it's just like Shaquille O'Neal was just out in public with Brittany Renner on a date. Uh, you know, they're, they're saying it was platonic or whatever, but it's like Shaquille O'Neal, one of the greatest basketball players. Are, I get it. Everybody sit here and talk. I, I, I love the way Brittany Renner looks or whatever, but. But her character is a reflection of your discernment. Yeah. And that's what I can't figure out. This is what I was talking about with Zion. How, how do you, you have the pick of the litter. First of all, why would you want a famous girlfriend or somebody that's run through? I think that's absolutely insane. But, but secondarily, it's like whoever I ever took out in public, because I was notorious in college, it's like nobody ever knew who I was dating because I needed to be pretty comfortable with you before I was willing to show you to anybody else. And so I knew that these girls were going to reflect my character and my discernment. So I wasn't gonna just take anybody out. And these guys are like, I'll be seen with anybody. They were, hey fellas. Here, I wish, go ahead Steve. Yeah, on my bingo card, TJ Mo saying run through, I, I didn't have that. I'm gonna be honest with you. I think it's like a landmark <laughs> achievement. And by the way, TJ, in terms of coaches, all these NBA, NFL guys, all right, if they need to at least subscribe to Coach Greg Adams then. He would set them straight on the game <laughs> of the game, the game that has nothing to do that's in between the lines. I'll just leave it at that. Back to you, Jason. <laughs> I wish I had and should have invited Royce on the show today. I don't know if he would have gone all the way here, but we've touched around it on the show before. But... but these guys, the, particularly NBA players, these six foot seven, six foot eight, you know, like I think 12% of the population is over 6'2. 12% of the population. That, that's a small amount. Uh, and so the average height in the NBA is six foot six. And, and so that maybe is 4% of the population. There's something about being tall that is an aphrodisiac. It, it, makes you more appealing to women, makes you more appealing sexually. And I've, I've mentioned this and talked about this briefly with Royce once on the show in terms of like, many of us cannot relate to the sexual world that Zion Williamson, who I think is six, seven, has been living in since probably he was 10, 11, or 12 years old. Let's say he reaches six foot at age 12. What he's been exposed to sexually, and then by the time he's a high school star where people are starting to think he's gonna be in the NBA and they see dollar signs, what he's been exposed to, the kind of sexual predators that have been trying to get their hooks into him since age 14. Hell, uh, there've been people like Mariah Mills and whoever this woman is he knocked up. Maybe the 29-year-old woman is someone that he started messing with when he was in high school. I, 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 I've seen this with my own eyes with these tall, athletic, the, 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 their temptation, again, when you're 13, 14, 15, you just don't have that kind of discipline. Someone gets their hooks into you, you have that first sexual experience, 
And then it, it, it's a wrap that, that, that sexual high. And again, that's why the Bible preaches abstinence. And that's why God wants us to save ourselves from marriage, because you don't want to enter the sexual Olympics way too early because it could change the entire course and direction of your life. I had a Bible teacher when I was in middle school. He was five foot one, maybe a tiny little guy. Marty Haas was his name. In fact, he, I think he's involved with my church now. I've, I've seen him around. I haven't told him I remember this yet. He gave the best advice that probably nobody in the class followed. But he said, guys, do you know why? He's like, just take the Bible is true. And sex is for the confines of marriage and all that. But let's just say you don't believe that. Do you want to have a good marriage? Well, then the reason you wait until marriage to have sex is because you don't know if she's terrible. It's the best you've ever had. So you don't have, like, you'll never sit there and compare her to the 10 best sexual experiences you ever had. You're like, this is amazing. She may be the worst of all time, but it's the best you ever had. Jason, it will TJ. Haunt you, and you will chase that high uh, to your own demise. Uh, it, it, it's, 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 a terrible, it's a terrible burden, and it sounds silly like I'm cracking a joke, but I'm, I'm dead serious. Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I feel like there's a website, or there was, called Baller Alert, and I think it was for ladies on the hunt because these, these, these ladies are predatory. They really are. They know what they're doing. When they get pregnant, it is no accident, okay? And I think that website used to alert certain ladies that, hey, there are athletes or rich men at this particular venue or club. Descend, and I'm sure that they were almost like hyenas on the hunt, so a lot of these players are targets, and I don't, again, I've never talked to Zion Williamson. I don't know what's in his mind. I wonder if he even really knew he was being hunted or if he was incredibly naive and said, wow, this, this young lady who works at a gentleman's club, she really likes me. She has a nice personality. And, and now, for better or worse, they're a part of each other's lives for at least 18 years. But that, that's the culture that is now so persuasive or pervasive in America that you have athletes who are certainly a brand, they're worth a lot of money, and there's a group of people that are looking to exploit them in some way. No question about it, Steve. I'm going to let you go. Uh, and and I, I, I want to say to the audience, this show has been adult. I do think it's worth your kids, or you having discussion with your kids about this, and particularly if you have a kid that's an athlete or whatever, I, I, no part of this discussion do I regret because I, I do think there's information and education and things that need to be gleaned from this. That, because our, our kids are growing up in a very sexualized culture and environment, and you're gonna have to learn how to equip them to deal with it. There's so much peer pressure. You're an outsider, you're, you, know, you haven't had sex at age by age 14, you're an outsider, blah, blah, blah. It, it, it's, <clears throat> and, and I don't wanna get too sympathetic to Zion and these athletes, but I do wanna just keep it real. Until you've walked in that space, and this is not something that I have uh, experience with, but you know, I've got friends, close friends, pro athletes, I got friends that, you know, I can think of one friend in particular that looks just like Eddie George. He's six foot two, six foot four-ish, built like Eddie George, never played in the NFL, but we used to hang out a lot. 
in, in Vegas. And it would be incredible the things that women would walk up and say to him that they would not say to me. And, and I could sit here, I could tell you a story about an NFL coach and his wife. Uh, we run into each other out in Las Vegas. I'm with my buddy. We'll call him Rob. His name's not Rob, but we'll just call him Rob. <clears throat> I'm talking to the NFL coach. The wife is talking to Rob. And she's telling him exactly what she wants to do to him if, if you know, if, if they can get a loan at some other point. I'm talking to the coach, she's talking to Rob, and she's telling him what she can do, what she will do, what she wants to do. And, and again, I don't have women, I, I didn't have that experience where women are walking. Zion Williamson, probably since he was 13 or 14 years old, has had women walking up to him saying, man, I will rock your world, I'll do X, Y, and Z. And, and then when you look, and you'll see Zion with these women that like, you're like, what's he doing? That big old woman and she don't look blah, blah, blah. Because probably at 12 or 13, that's the size of some grown woman that got her hooks into him and gave him the taste for that. It's, it's very adult conversation today. I don't regret it, but it's real. We talk about sports and all the issues uh, on this show. When we come back, We'll bring a 20-year-old into the conversation. We'll talk to Jordan Bowles, have a brief discussion with him. I want to talk to somebody from that generation. Jordan was a great high school basketball player. His brother's going to be a college basketball player. His whole family uh, involved in sports. Uh, Jordan Bowles, It's my obligation to hate discrimination. Raising up your hands for freedom. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I like that. We got an open for Jordan. Jordan, I'm bringing you into a very hot topic, a very adult topic. But uh, Jordan, I just needed a 20-year-old's perspective because Zion Williams is only 22. Uh, wh- what do you think of what Zion Williamson is doing? Is, is he living the dream of 20-something-year-old basketball players? Is, is this... Do you think his behavior is commonplace among athletes of your generation? Uh, it's hard for me to say. I think he's living the dream of rich basketball players, young basketball players, uh, rich American basketball players. Let's say that. Uh, very distracted. Once again, like I said last week when I came on and talked about the distractions here in America about basketball players in general. Here's another example given by another young uh, star in the league. You know, we already have John Morant toting guns on video. And here we have Zion Williamson messing with porn stars and impregnating other women as well. Uh, 
very ugly for the U.S. basketball players today. So when you talk to your peers, how will you guys talk about Zion Williamson? Will it be jokes? Will it be uh, don't I don't want to do anything or be anything like Zion Williamson? How, how will that discussion go? Uh, I don't know about every other 20, 21, 22 year old out here, but I don't fantasize about getting with porn stars. I don't think that's something I really look forward to. You know, I would love a nice, beautiful woman sometime down the road, but you know, I'm not, when we talk about Zion, we probably joke about Zion because this whole getting with porn stars thing and strippers like Paul George has gotten with one before and other stars. Uh, I don't think that's something that's common ground amongst younger people, in my opinion. And I want to be careful because I don't want your dad to be mad at me. Uh, (laughs) But but I do want to ask you a real question. Why why does, you know, I'm and people get upset with me for even asking this question because we do keep things here from a biblical worldview. And so. The guy needs to be practicing abstinence until marriage. But why do these young guys struggle just to put a condom on it? It just doesn't. He's got so oh. much to protect. Uh, <laughs> why can't I mean, is it is it really that hard to wear a condom? It shouldn't be. I mean, first of all, with all the money he has, condoms are cheap. Uh, <laughs> there's. <laughs> There's there's absolutely no reason why he, he didn't use one. I, I actually I actually don't know what he was doing or what he was thinking. You know, this whole uh younger people like to say pull out game is not real. You know, it's not a real thing. So I don't know what made it so difficult for him to just use protection, you know. You know, worst comes to worst, he could have gotten this woman pregnant or he could have gotten he could have gotten sick. Maybe this woman had something and could have passed it on to him, or he had something that could have passed it on to her. You know, so it's it's bigger than just uh, pregnancy. It's you know your health in general. So he is a laughing stock right now, and is is people are talking going to start calling him a bust. Do you think this controversy uh, will impact the rest of his career? I tend to think it's going to be similar to Tiger Woods on Thanksgiving 2009. was never really the same player after that embarrassing moment on 2009 with his wife chasing him and him wrecking the car. Do you think this controversy and this embarrassment is going to damage the rest of Zion's career? I actually don't think so. I actually do not because I think when Zion gets on the floor, and me and you both know, he gets on the floor, he handles business. I mean, he was talking, this guy gets 27, 7, and 7 when he's out there playing. I think his problems are more like Anthony Davis's problems. We have to keep Zion on the court and keep him healthy and in shape. You know, he, for a minute, he wasn't looking ready to play small forward for the New Orleans Pelicans. Looked like he was about to sign up and, and be signed to the New Orleans Saints to play uh, guard uh, for the O-line. That's what it looked like to me. So I think this, uh, this little embarrassing moment for him, I don't think it will set him too far off in the basketball world. I think we'll, in the world nowadays with media, we move so fast. So we'll see this, joke about it, talk about it for a week or two, and then 
we'll look down the road. If Zion gets back on the court and balls out, we won't even think about this anymore. Thank you, Jordan. Great job. PJ, I want to ask you, that. do you think this will have any impact on the rest of his career? I think it would have 20, 30 years ago when this was worth being embarrassed about. It's like Jimmy Garoppolo's dating a porn star out in San Francisco. It's like, it's, it's very normal behavior. He's obviously not embarrassed about it, which is why he's having a gender reveal. I, I don't, inside of his own head, he doesn't care. I, we'll talk, I, I think Jordan's right about the news cycle. I and mean, it's like, particularly during election season, <laughs> where the bi- next biggest story to ever come up will be tomorrow. And then it'll be again in three days. And, you know, if he can ever get on the floor and play some ball, he's going to be all right. Actually, it, it could wear on somebody if it were worth being embarrassed about in today's culture. And what's frustrating is that it's not. All right, uh, stay tuned. We're going to do some Tennessee Harmony. We need the Walker brothers in here to pray over me in this show. Uh, I know some of you have been uncomfortable, but I, I, I think we had to have that conversation. And so uh, we'll do some Tennessee Harmony and talk about shame. Earlier this week, had a conversation where I was arguing that shame is good and we need to return to people feeling shame. Uh, but I want to know if I'm, I'm biblically sound on that. And so Anthony Walker and Virgil Walker will answer that question. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back. Time for some Tennessee Harmony uh, with Anthony Walker and Virgil Walker. Uh, We're going to talk about shame, and we're also going to talk about the passing of Pat Robertson. Uh, But, uh, Anthony, if you could start us off with a prayer, appreciate it. Father God, we're thankful for your blessings, thankful for today. Father, help us uh, as we grapple in this discussion on guilt and shame Uh, We're praying for those who may be experiencing guilt and shame and praying that uh, the word will clarify in today's discussion. We're thankful for this platform. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I, for some reason, and I beat my brain up and I didn't do the homework because doing other things uh, and working on Friday show and all that, but I can't remember exactly what sparked our conversation earlier this week. I know what you were responding to. What? Go ahead. I, I was talking about how people make this their identity and I don't want to be around that sin. And your response came to, because I was talking about, look, I don't want to be around. The, it was Pride Month stuff. And I said, look, I, I don't want to be around you if this is how you're going to be acting out in the street doing parades. No different than I don't want to be around you if you're drunk and in, in the act of your own depravity. And you said, this is why I think we need to go back to people feeling shame. This is not good behavior. Yeah. And so like people doing things out in public and just, you know, there's every bit of their sexuality they have to put out on 
display. And I'm just like, we have no shame in this society. And I think shame is a good thing. And I talked about how, yeah, yeah, I remember I said, I talked about how like uh, Tuesday morning, I had a second protein bar. And in the moment when I had that, I felt shame about it. I'm like, dang it, I'm fighting this battle of the bulge. I just had it, I don't wanna do this. I go, it's shame is a good thing. TJ doesn't like the word shame and he, I think he prefers guilt. I think that was our. Yeah, so again, Brene Brown, not a fan of in the aftermath, but when I read her book, it was an excellent book. It's called Daring Greatly and it was delineating between the difference of shame and guilt and, and her contention. And I think culturally the way we use it is that shame is about self and self-worth and guilt is about behavior. So it'd be the difference between telling your kid who just told a lie, you're a liar. And now that defines who he is. Instead of saying, you just lied, that's unacceptable. And therefore, here are your consequences. Well, that's fixable. You just did something that was unacceptable. Now we know that behavior is not good, but that doesn't define who you are, that behavior. You just need to fix the behavior. But you feel shame, no different like in the old times where people would say, you've just brought shame to your family. That's unfixable, right? It's like. If Why is it unfixable? Because your actions are reflective of them and then now that's how everybody thinks of them. As opposed to doing something poorly, changing that behavior to become a better person. I, I think the Holy Spirit creates guilt for us. We know what scripture is and that guilt is good and it pushes us to a better place. When you feel shame, well, now that's, just, that, that's who defines who you are. But I would say I've spent, the, the only thing that, keeps me from going all the way off the edge. When I'm, particularly when I'm thinking about when I was young, I was like, man, my mother, my mama lovey, my father, they'd be so ashamed of me. I, I, I don't want to do anything to shame my family. And so even the things that I did do to shame my family, it's, it's like I've done other things to recover. You know, I got, I got caught stealing when I was a kid. Shame, I can remember my mother getting that belt out. And <laughs> you don't make a fool out of me. You make a fool out of yourself. <laughs> and, and, but I've done other things to recover. So I feel like I don't bring them shame now. I actually, you know, they're very, to use another word I don't like to use, but they're very proud <laughs> of me. They're well pleased uh, with me. Anyway, let's go to the experts, uh, Anthony and Virgil. Shame, good thing or bad thing? So uh, we do have to bring in guilt to really get an understanding of what we're talking about. Biblically, uh, shame is the negative impact of sin on you, uh, your family, ultimately on God. Okay? Shame is that negative impact. Uh, guilt is the conviction of your sin. So that is, I've done something wrong and, and being convicted to know this is wrong, I should not have done it. One of the best examples to see both guilt and shame and how they uh, worked in scripture is David and his adultery and murder, uh, adultery with uh, Bathsheba and murder of her husband. At the time, David, you know, he's just going after his lust, participating in this sin and, and had her husband killed, et cetera. And a friend of his, Nathan, comes to him and says, man, you know, he tells him a parable about a guy who was wealthy and had all these sheep and guy, his neighbor had just one little ewe lamb. And so in telling this parable to David, 
David's like, man, that ought to be that guy ought to be killed. And Nathan says, you're the man. And it brings into full picture David's sin and the impact. And he felt shameful, like, oh, my gosh. And he was convicted. He goes to God with this. And we read in Psalm 51 and he's saying, God, this act that I've done, my, my sin will be before me. And that's kind of where you're touching on it as far as the shame. When we sin, it, it brings forth a shame on us and a shame upon those who we're associated with, our family and God. And guilt is what convicts us. It tells me, OK, I, I, I got to get this right. I've messed up very badly. I got to get this right. And that's that's kind of how those two things are defined biblically. Now, when we look at shaming someone, turning that into a verb to shame them, that's when we get into self-righteousness. And we got to be careful with that. I, I'll leave some room for Virgil to kind of touch on it, on, touch on what he wants to say. But uh, if we have time, we'll come back to my warning on that. Before Virgil jumps in, though, I am pro-fat shaming. So there's... <laughs> oh. pro-fat. As long as Whitlock shames, you're good with it. You just don't want nothing to do Pro-fat guilting, we'll call it. All right? <laughs> Go ahead, Virgil. No, I, I think Anthony just teed it up incredibly, incredibly well to, to establish the differences that, that the shame can be something that a family experiences, even though they, they, they did not participate in the, the sinful act, right? The shame is something that they feel as a, as a byproduct. So shame can affect more than just the individual. It can affect others around. So I thought Anthony did a fantastic job of, of um, unpacking that. Biblically speaking, when we go back and look at, in the Old Testament, the first time we see shame mentioned in the scripture uh, is is in Genesis chapter two, verse I believe it's twenty six or it's twenty eight, uh, where where uh, Adam and Eve are mentioned and the fact that they were naked and unashamed, right? God had just created all of mankind and just created uh, the, you know the, the earth, created everything, and, and uh, t talks about how he created man in his image and likeness. Uh, and then at the very end of that chapter is that like he brought them together and they were naked and unashamed uh, is what scripture actually says. And so it tees up what happens in Genesis chapter three, which is the fall takes place. Sin enters the world. And as a result, when when God comes looking for Adam to, to find out what's what's transpired, really not to find out what's transpired. He knew what's transpired in an effort to confront Adam of, of, of his sin. They hid from him. And the reason for that was because they felt shame. As sin enters the world, they experience shame. The guilt then takes place uh, as a result of the confrontation of what they had done. Um, he, God asked Adam, you know, what, what, what have you done? And he, he explains, he basically blames the woman. Well, it's this woman that you gave me. He actually not only blames the woman, he actually, he actually infers that it's God's fault, right? It's, it's the woman that you gave me, right? God, you gave me this woman, and she's the one that, that gave me uh, you know, the fruit, the forbidden fruit. And so all the, the, the guilt, the shame, all of that, it, it, when it's acted out upon, uh, as we see it in, in fruition, it really has incredibly damaging effects. At the end of the day, I think the conversation that you had was, man, we need to have more shame in the world. Like there needs to be some ma manner or mechanism by which we have a conscience that tells us that we're wrong in the kinds of things that we're doing, particularly with regard to issues of, of pride and pride month and, and the like. Uh, I, I think about that from a standpoint of Romans chapter one, uh, where, where we see what takes place. There's a couple of instances in that chapter where it talks about uh, shame and, and being unashamed. 
Paul says in chapter one, verse 16, that he's unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. So he's taking a stance to say, I'm not ashamed of this. Now, culture would tell me that I should be. Culture would tell me that I should be quiet, but, but I'm, I, I refute that. I'm unashamed of the gospel. But you go further and you see the impact of a culture that does not have shame. The further the text goes, you read about the fact that they have suppressed the truth of God and unrighteousness. What are they doing? They are suppressing the shame that's on the inside of them because they love their sin and they hate God. And as a result, they're unable to hear God's warnings all along. You know, and what, what does God do? God gives them up to their depravity. We have a tendency to think that you know, God is going to judge us in our country. God is going to judge us for Pride Month. God is going to judge us for abortion. God is going to judge us for these things. The reality is the judgment of God is that we have those things. So it's, it's not the LGBTQ thing is here and the agenda is pushing forward. And if we don't stop it, God's going to judge us. No, the judgment of God is that we actually have those things in our culture mm. to the degree that we do. And so what we need to do is, is come to, to repentance and faith in, in Christ. You know, Anthony and I were talking this morning about, about the impact. It's imperative that, that we don't get in the, in, in the, in the habit or in the, in the mindset that, that it is our job to go shaming others, but we do have a responsibility to go and proclaim God's truth. And in that, we need to walk therein as well. So I hear that and part of me says that you're kind of making TJ's argument, but he's not. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. He's, he's talking about what, what you're really getting at, Jason, as a result of what you want shame to do. Yes. The, the, what you really want, the end point of that is you want repentance. Yes. yes. And so the guilt is what convicts us leads us to repentance. The shame in what I have brought upon myself, upon my family, upon God, the reputation of God. Imagine as we walk in sin and we're doing all this crazy stuff, but we say, I'm a Christian. It makes the world think, what kind of God are you following? It brings shame upon him. But again, the result that we really want is repentance. We want their lives changed. We want them turning from wickedness to righteousness and living faithful unto God. Mm. As, a, as he talks to those people that we're, you know, we're looking at in the world who are just engaging in pride. When I look at sin, Jason, you got three, basically three different kinds of people that get involved in sin. There's ignorance, people who sin out of ignorance. I didn't know the right way, okay? There are those who are rebellious. There are those who, um, as they you know, get in their sin, they, they fall to temptation. They're overtaken in temptation. Well, how do you deal with those three kinds of people? To those who sin in ignorance, if I want them to be you know, convicted by God's word and we lead them into repentance and we teach them, that takes care of that. To those who fall as a result of, you know, I just you know, overcome by temptation. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter six, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit mm -hmm. of meekness, considering yourself. Hey, I have fallen to temptation before. I get it. But again, we're restoring you. We want you to repent to those who are rebellious. That's what Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter one. You know the rules, you know what's going on and you are intent upon breaking them. You're going to have to deal with God. Now, now, my job as a minister, as a Christian, 
is to teach the word, uh, to help restore those, to help bring people to repentance. But I, I have to be careful, as I said about warning, I have to be careful about shaming because now I can get involved in self-righteousness. See, I can look at myself and say, I don't struggle with this, this, this and this, but TJ does. And so I can go to him. Oh, you should this, you should that. Look, how could you be? Uh, it reminds me of the uh, woman that Jesus came up on who was caught in the act of adultery. If anybody could have called her a list of names that we call women who are you know, harlot or whore or whatever, Jesus could have done that. But he tells the people who are there with the intent of shaming and condemnation, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And when they leave, he tells her, where, where are your condemners? Where are those who came to shame you? And neither will I. But what does he do to her? He teaches her, repent, go and sin no more. So we don't have to engage in the shaming of people. Teach the word. It will convict, which is what it's supposed to do. And our hope and prayer is that it leads to repentance. I like that. And I, one of the things, the other revelation, I'm going to connect it to something else I think we talked about either this week or last week. The reason why there's an absence of shame, because I'm sitting here thinking about how I've lived my life in terms of like, man, my parents did all this for me and I owe them. I owe my grandmother. Mm. And so I'm thinking about them and that, that really does draw a line in the sand of how stupid I can be. I'm mostly talking about myself as a young person, but even as an adult. And, and, and so then I think about you all that have taken on uh, families and you got a wife and kids and well, I, I don't wanna do anything to dishonor them yeah. as well as my parents and grandparents. Mm -hmm. And I think about this society that we've built that has prioritized everybody else except for the people closest to you. Right. The reason why there's no shame is because everyone, people are doing things for the approval and the attention of Twitter and people in other cities and countries, people they have no real connection to. And so many of our thoughts, where I grew up as a kid thinking about, well, what's my mom and daddy and what's Mama Lovey going to think? Oh. And they're thinking about, I wonder what Twitter's going to think. Am I going to get a bunch of likes? Is this going to be approved here? And so that absent, that's how you get caught up out in a parade half naked, acting like you pumping another guy, is because, you know, this will play well in all these other circles and you're not even thinking, well, how's it going to play with Mama and Daddy? How's it going to play with my kids? And because and what I think you're telling me, Anthony, is like it's the individual should feel shame. Yes. Not for Anthony to make me feel shame. Mm -mm. We want to build moral people that have enough connection to people that have invested in them and love them that they feel shame because they don't want to harm the people closest to them, and we've just told, th this whole thing, this internet is supposed to have brought us together and made the world s smaller. It's actually torn us apart. Yeah. It's actually connected us to a bunch of people that we really just shouldn't even care that much about. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, and like you, like you just said, when you would come home, when I would come home, my thought process is what I did today in life, how I lived, how I conducted myself, 
how is that going to make my mom, my granny feel? You know, man, this I messed up. That's she's going to be so disappointed. And then when I get in front of her, she's going to tell me, man, God, did, God has been too good for you to act like that. I'm more concerned about this. I could care less about, you know, social media. But when the family's broken up, Jason, and when the relationship with God is not there, hey, we flaunt our sin in pride. So <clears throat> this, I was, this sort of marries, it sounds like, one of your pet peeves with what we're talking about here. Proverbs 11:2: when pride comes, then comes shame. But with humility is wisdom. And so it takes pride for your shame to occur whatever you're doing. And part of that, when you're talking about your, your own selfishness, it takes humility to get outside of yourself to think, how's this gonna affect Mama Lovey? And how's this gonna affect my mom? And how's this gonna affect my dad? And the Whitlock name. It's not mm. about me, it's about the Whitlock name. So I need to act this way. When you get outside of that and you get into your pride, that's where the shame comes because you're only thinking about yourself. Uh, guys, uh, particularly uh, Anthony and Virgil, I wanted to, uh, and Virgil, you start us off. Pat Robertson has passed away, uh, I think 83 years old or did 93? 93. 93 years old, uh, ran for president in 1988, uh, started the Christian Coalition, which I don't know how I feel about, you know, marrying uh, Christianity to politics. Uh, 700 Club, my, my grandmother, Love Pat Robertson and watching the 700 Club. I remember that very vividly. Uh, Virgil, what is Pat Robertson's legacy and what did you think about him marrying Christianity to politics and particularly the Republican Party? Yeah, all of this is interesting and, and I think it brings up an interesting conversation. I was talking earlier with, with Anthony about this and it's one of those things where like most men, uh, most, most flawed human beings, uh, any legacy that we leave will have its high points and its low points. Uh, I think I think uh, Pat Robertson's is is an indication of that. Uh, he had his, his high points with what he tried to do and and uh, bringing Christian television or bringing Christianity into the the public sphere through television. Uh, the starting of the 700th Club. I, I remember watching it, but but from that, you know, we we would uh, we would get uh, uh, Jim and Tammy Baker. They would go off and do the PTL Club, and there was kind of a kind of two two dueling kind of kind of points of view as to how to approach uh, you know, the, the rest of the culture through that medium. Uh, you had the, the Christian coalition uh, and all of what that looked like. Ralph Reed would later pick up that, that mantle, that banner, and, and push that forward. We would eventually get out of that. Uh, Newt Gingrich and, and the, uh, you know, the Republican kind of resurgence uh, that we did in the early 90s. Uh, as a result, we had the contract with America. So yeah, there, there's some there's some positives, there's some negatives. There's the you know right after 9/11, you had him saying things uh, like you know the reason for uh, the event that took place at 9/11 was 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 a, a, an issue of, of gays and, and and the like. I mean all kinds of things that that you know th that that was God's judgment. That God's judgment was the planes flying into uh, you know the towers uh, because of because of the embrace of of, of homosexuality and those kinds of things. I mean they 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 catch the the headlines. Uh, 
Uh, they're just not wise to say, and, 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 and nor are they thoughtful. Um, and so you've got to think through what you're doing, especially when you have a platform like he does. The older he got, I think the more and more people just kind of thought, well, he's he's old and, and you know, it's kind of settled in his ways. And, and he kind of got ignored for quite some time until now when we'll have the opportunity to revisit uh, his legacy, so to speak. So, again, like like most people, it'll be there'll be high points. There'll be low points uh, to to thinking about him and thinking about what he had to share. Uh, I always want to leave room right after the point of someone's death to just allow folks to mourn uh, those who those who do have that uh, that that care, that love, that that affection for what Pat Robertson uh, offered to to both the church and culture uh, for them to do that, and then and then you know look at what the legacy had had uh, to had to say. I'll say this, Jason, with regard to something that you you raised as it relates to the combining of kind of religious faith and, 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 uh, and politics. Um, this is the current debate that we're having with Christian, Christian nationalism, right? I mean, uh, and, and I know that, that folks who are on the Christian nationalist side will, will hate to hear me say this, but, but Pat Robertson was the first of their, of their generation. Like he was, he was their forerunner, right? He, now, as, as he understood his Christian faith, as he understood his, his Christian direction and all of that, he, he pushed that forward into the culture. Um, you can like what he did. You cannot like what he did, but you have to pause and examine what that looks like. How are we doing that? And is it effective? I, I think that I don't think that Christian faith should be something that is it, I'm not pietistic about that meaning. I'm not, you know, me and mine, my four, no more. I'm going to hide myself. I'm going to practice my faith. It's going to be private. No one will know. No, we're 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 out in the culture, proclaiming truth, proclaiming uh, uh, the gospel, uh, proclaiming it, it, dealing with issues of sin in the culture. I think we have a responsibility to do that. How we marry those two up and what that looks like from a standpoint of seeing government uh, beginning to speak into church and church speaking into government. I think those are times when we have to push the pause button and ask some real questions uh, and examine those ideas for what they are. Virgil said the best. You have no individual thought, nothing about Pat Robertson or your mom or your grandmama that didn't have mm, mm. my My granny didn't really watch him because of some um, her thoughts on what he was really trying to do. She was a little skeptical. Uh, and so for me, when I got old enough to really watch him, we were theologically on some different places. So, yeah. you know, in, in some ways, like what Virgil's saying, he was a pioneer in terms of Christian platform, you know, having the 700 Club and getting people out. But then the people that he brought out brought in a whole lot of other stuff that we deal with. Uh, mm -hmm. But no, I'm, I'm just in a space of, hey, we mourn with those who mourn. Uh, a eulogy, the word eulogy comes from a Greek word, eulogia, which means to speak well of. So in respect of him and those who love and care for him, we pray for them uh, for comfort for their loss. Let me get you and Virgil to respond to this, my take. I don't think a minister should dive headfirst into politics. Uh -huh. Am I wrong for thinking that? No, I'm, I, think you're, I think you're fine. My, my thing about how, how we deal with uh, Christianity and politics, it is the, it's, it's what's going to be the source that's going to feed into that. Yeah. And, and when you partner them with a political angle, you know politics can sway any way the wind blows, any way the money is coming mm -hmm. from a Christianity space. We only stay in this vein of what God desires. 
And what that means, though, is that at times, politically, it may sway one way as the money goes, but I got to stay true to the word. So at sometimes I might be lauding this candidate, but in another time I might be critical of that candidate. So I don't want to marry politics to Christianity because now if it moves, then people are going to say, well, I thought you were. No, I need to stay with Christ. And when politics aligns with what Christ says, good. But when it doesn't, I need to be in a space where I can critique. It. I want to I TJ, I want you to jump in, but I want to clarify my statement, what I mean by that. Gotcha. A, a minister that runs for president, mm. a minister that uh, referees presidential debates, Rick Warren. Th that's too much. Should a minister talk about what's going on in the culture and what's going on in politics? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But you start running for president, and I'm Jesse Jackson and Pat Robertson and all these, I, I just, because politics are about compromise, and I, and maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't see the words uncompromising, right. and so you know it locks you in, and so I, I just don't want to see a minister. I, I don't have a minister. He can endorse somebody. He can, whatever. But when you dive head first, I just I think it's a mistake. I don't think it's a mistake. <clears throat> um, I think. As Christians, and ministers are supposed to be the ones leading us, we're supposed to touch every part of the culture. And I'm not saying going and compromise. I'm saying going and don't you dare compromise. And so I would love for a minister to be our president. I would love for a guy to go in there. I, I would never be more excited than going into a voting booth and be able to vote for a guy like Tony Evans, somebody that I have faith in the conviction of who they are. And I just, I think as Christians, we are called to, you talk about it all the time, we have to create the culture. Well, what's, what's a better way to create the culture than actually enter the politics instead of lobbying and saying, well, I don't like Donald Trump's character, but I mean, you know, lesser of two evils. Why don't you just go be the guy that's not evil? And why can't that be a minister? I just, I think people, and look, I could admit I'm wrong, but it's like, I feel like I have a... I'm personalizing, but I think people have s specific roles based on their gifts, based on their calling. I'm a journalist. I believe that's my calling to seek out truth through journalism and then to try to use, I I'm not a minister. And then so I try to use my journalism to support ministers. And I want ministers to stay ministers. And then I want ministers to counsel and advise Christian politicians. And so let's take Bill Lee. I believe he's a sincere Christian. I've met with him, conversations with him. He, he ministers need to be actively counseling him and guiding him. And, but but I, don't, I don't think then ministers should step outside their roles. Well, you know, I'm gonna be the politician. I, I just think for me, and I, I have to do more research on it, but it's like you're trying to serve two masters. One question for you, though, because the history of our country says career politicians shouldn't exist. So who are they to be then? Because what it should be is a businessman who goes in and serves his country for a while as a public official and then goes back to what he's doing. 
And so way back when, it used to be we would just rotate, right? If it's your turn to go, I'll take care of your farm and your family while you're gone serving as senator for us. You come back and it'll be the next guy. So the politics have turned into these 40, 50-year career politicians, and I think that's wrong. I would love for Anthony Walker to go serve his term and then come back and be a minister, and now it's my turn. Hmm. Virgil, uh, I'm yes. going to give you the final word. Man, I, I have been chomping at the bit waiting to get back into this bad boy. <laughs> if, I, if I believe, which I do, that Christ is king, if I serve in the role of pastor, I am sitting in the highest office in the world. Why would I take the time to lower myself? <laughs> to get to any other local office that some that 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 you know that a that an elected official would would aim themselves toward I, I wouldn't waste my time doing that what i would do is i would proclaim the unadulterated truth of the message of the gospel i would speak truth to power i would be a prophetic voice in the culture that is not encumbered by democrat republican or independent I would speak the truth of the power of God in every way, shape, and form, and would not have to be worried about a, a political party. Now, that said, I think I think if someone has Christian conviction and feels led to jump into politics, more power to them. But someone who has made the decision to enter the role of, of, of a pastor, minister, a leader at the church, an elder, I, I, you're in the highest office in the, not in the land, in the world, Christ is king. So you don't have to go to a political office, a political party, that's, that's not necessary. But these kinds of issues, these kinds of challenges, the kind of conversation that we're having, that's a part of this, this Christian nationalism debate, right? This is, this is a part of the conversation that's being had uh, that, that I think is a, it's an important one. And, and, the, uh, and the opportunity to talk about it in light of what I believe or who I believe was kind of the first iteration of, of this Christian nationalist movement type deal was Pat Robertson. I, I, I'd argue that he was the, the father of their movement and, and, and the largest part of their movement, which, which really, uh, I think he comes from uh, an Assemblies of God background. I know he was involved in the Southern Baptist Church for a while, uh, but, but he's got a background where, where a lot of the folks who are, who are waving the banner of Christian nationalism are, are you know, are at. Uh, so this will be a great conversation, not only for today, but for the, for the, for the days to come. I think it's a, a much more, uh, it's a, it's a deeper conversation uh, that I think needs to be had and that we probably will be having over the course of some time. We certainly will because Virgil, you have the unique uh, Whitlock-esque ability to say something I like while at the same time saying something I don't like. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm sitting there, go oh, Virgil, Virgil's on my now. Then you want to dump on Christian nationalism, and I'm like, all right, we don't have <laughs> I'm going to sit Dave Shannon on you. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to have to, we are, you know, we're going to have this out. We're, we're going to start doing Twitter spaces, yeah. and this may be a good conversation for us over uh, Twitter spaces. Uh, so stay tuned for that. You've got the ball rolling. For the record, I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting tweet, I'm getting text messages from, from Dave now. I'm sure if I read him, he'll tell me I'm all wrong. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> You're dead wrong, but uh, we'll save that for a later day. Uh, thank you, guys. Cue uh, up some harmony, and we'll see you tomorrow. 
so divided Stop fighting and stand tall We used to be a nation, one united Now we're headed for a downfall Gotta let your light shine down What we need more than anything to me 